You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Let's talk about Leviticus and holiness in the 12 steps, like you guys have been waiting your whole life for somebody to finally talk about Leviticus and the holiness and the 12 steps. Um, but, but, you know, I, I'm, um, I've kind of gotten this thing, like, um, we, we do this thing, we do this Christianese thing where we say we shouldn't, we shouldn't use words like holiness because that'll turn people off. When actually holiness is this gorgeous concept, I mean, this beautiful concept that is central to the story of God, and we have two choices. We can sort of dispense with the word because people might be put off by it, or we can actually, we can fall in love with the word and understand it. Does this make sense? Like, I'm from Augusta, Georgia. Augusta, Georgia is the home of the masters. Yeah, there you go. And um, so the two golfers in the room, loving that. And so when a golfer goes out on the course, I mean, grown men going out on the course, and they hit, a, a, you know, like they, they, they do a whole, I'm not a golfer, so it's, I'm about to reveal that right now. Um, but they, they do a hole. What do you do? You, you golf a hole, and, and, and it's the, the, like par five, but you hit it in three. That's called a, no, it's called a birdie. <laughs> I really should stop right now because I'm really kind of going this off the top of my head. But you call it a birdie. Two grown men standing in front going, great, you've got a birdie. You would think at some point along the way, grown men would have said, we should come up with a manlier term for that than birdie. You've just hit a really good hole, but you're calling it a really stupid name. But golfers, instead of saying the name is stupid, no, what we do is we tell them, you better get used to the verbiage that's on the golf course because this is what we call it. So what I want to say to you is good on you for coming and learning what that word means that you have to look at at least three times a week for four years. Good on you for learning because it is a beautiful, glorious, gorgeous term that could actually save your life one day if you really take it seriously. And then the 12 steps. This morning we looked at two. I'm a 12-step fan. I told you a little bit of my story this morning, but I also lead a recovery group every Tuesday night. I got career meth addicts in my, in my group, and people who, who um, they, they put the codependent and codependent and um, just serious, serious uh, need for recovery. And we have discovered together that the 12 steps are just this really lovely way to walk into sanctification together. So this morning we talked about the first two. We admitted that our lives had become unmanageable and that we needed a power, that's step two, greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity. Tonight we're going to talk about step three, which is that we made an, 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 a, um, a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care. And of course in the, in the traditional 12 steps it doesn't use the term Jesus, but uh, I'm not really big on the higher power language, so I just say Jesus. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of Jesus, who has power to restore us to sanity. So I want you to write this question down and deal with it tonight, okay? 
What things in my life, oh, and I've, I said this this morning, but just in case you didn't catch it this morning, the best way to engage a message is with something to write on, something to write with, and with a Bible. So get your Bible out, get something to write on, get something to write with. I'll tell you things along the way to write down, and it really helps when you're telling your friends about it later. Um, what things in my life need to be pressed into the death of Jesus? What things in my life need to be pressed into the death of Jesus? What parts of me have more in common with death than life? That's the whole thing about Leviticus. It's about coming from death to life. So what inferior gods, what nagging demons, what things that need to die am I dragging around when the best thing I could do for myself is press them into the flesh of the crucifixion because this Jesus we follow has power even while he's on the cross to take our place at the point of death. Christ alone has power over the things that breed death in us. How cool is that? So you take the things that need to be, I keep pointing over there because there's a cross, that we really need to bring that closer tomorrow. The, 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 take the things that you press them into the flesh of the crucified Jesus, and then what does Jesus do with them? He's resurrected. So those things that were death to you become life through the death of Jesus. You know what resurrection actually means? Resurrection actually literally means to stand up again. So I want to ask you, would you just stand up right now? Just stand up again. You've just been resurrected. <laughs> will you turn to your friend before you sit down? High five, hug, or handshake somebody and say, welcome to the resurrected side. I mean, that's what happens. That's why the cross is so incredibly important in this whole process, why the whole sacrificial system in Leviticus prefigures what happened on the cross. It's, it's, it's God saying over and over, somebody's got to take what means death to you and turn it into life. So we're doing this thing with the book of Leviticus, possibly the most misunderstood book of the Bible, but because we, we've not taken the time what it, to, to understand what it means to go from death to life, to become whole and holy means to live, to really live, really live. That's the starting point of all good recovery. It's this recognition that I was dead. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And, 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 I, 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 and when I was um, in, in my sin, I was living in death. And now I want to come to life. And recovery also teaches me that I'm not God. That in fact I'm powerless to change myself. I have to depend on a God who's more powerful to me to restore me to wholeness. And that's the whole thing with Leviticus. You are to be holy because God is. And that's not so much a command as a fact. God, pure love, dynamic, creative, merciful, slow to anger, perfectly wise, is holy. And because he is, we have that capacity too. Not by proficiency, but by proximity. So are you with me on that? The closer I get to God, the closer I get to holiness. 
But we humans have a hard time accepting things we can't control. So from our earliest history, our people have mishandled this gift of holiness. We made it more interesting for engineers than artists. Carefully carving it into thousands or countless laws and rules we have to memorize and master. Do these really hard, rigid, fun-sucking things and we will call you holy which is a lie, because holiness isn't something we do, it's something we are. Holiness is the very character of a loving, creative, joyful, joy-giving God who has told us we can become loving, creative, joyful, and joy-giving by sheer proximity to Him. I loved, anybody here go to a new room this year? Look at didn't you love the way Miriam Swafield talked about holiness? That was awesome. She talks about her, her white skinny jeans or the white skinny jeans she can't wear. Because the minute you put on white skinny jeans, you know what happens? The minute you put them on, coffee happens or spaghetti sauce happens. That's what happens to your white skinny jeans. And that tends to be the way we think about holiness. We tend to think of holiness as a pair of white skinny jeans in a universe overrun by spaghetti sauce and coffee. So we have to protect ourselves and wear raincoats because God is only admitting people into heaven whose white skinny jeans are completely unstained. Holiness has gotten such a bad rap because of a distorted image of what it is. But what if, listen to me, what if instead of holiness being this incredibly delicate thing we have to guard, what if instead of holiness being a pair of white skinny jeans, it's actually bleach? That's what Miriam says. What if it's this beautiful thing we get to bear to the world, walking into the world, wearing our white skinny jeans, but spreading bleach out before us so we are ushering, it, uh, uh, we're ushering holiness into the world rather than it ushering us out? Friends, what I want to say to you is this. Holiness is the ultimate form of freedom. You should write that down. It calls out the best in us and causes us, when we live it well, to glorify God. We are holy by exposure to God. And I'm convinced this is the cure for the spirit of rebellion that nags at every fallen human. Everybody living on this side of Genesis 3 is dealing with the demon of rebellion. So this morning we looked at the sacrifices outlined in the first eight chapters of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 8 is the story of Moses after he lays out all the sacrificial system, lays that system out. He ordains Aaron and his sons as the first priests. And it's a great story. So if you have a Bible, look at Leviticus 9, 22 to 24. And then Aaron lifted his hands. This is, they've been, now they've been ordained by Moses. And then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people, and he blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burn offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. 
How awesome is that? So Aaron's been set apart for the work of priest. The Hebrew word is kadash, which means set apart for a specific purpose or to be holy. So holy is not just being really good or pure or acting right. To be holy is to be different. It's to be a witness to the character of God in the world. When holiness is done right, it's worship. And when worship is done right, glory is exposed. And when glory is exposed, joy springs up. How cool is that? When the glory of God was revealed and fire fell down, the people were overwhelmed with joy. Friends, that is worship done well with humility, in submission, a recognition that there is a God worthy of our worship who shows up in glory and inspires joy. Aaron gets it. We've got this guy I don't know if you've heard me tell this story, if you've been at New Room before. We've got this guy in our church. His name is Matthew. He has Down syndrome. I absolutely adore Matthew. He shows up in my office every week between services to pray over our team. Who, you know, we, we meet between services, sort of debrief between first and second, and then he prays over us. And we don't understand much about what he's saying, but I tell you, I'm so stunned by his prayer life. I mean, I'm so stunned by his prayer life. We always know we've been prayed for when Matthew prays for us. Matthew is completely defensive, uh, defenseless against the Holy Spirit. So he gets in there on Sunday mornings and, and if the worship team starts going, he, he starts doing this, you know, so everybody's out there and there and he's just this one guy doing this. And you can just feel, he just, he can't help it. He is so excited about the Holy Spirit in this room. And then, you know, he starts doing this. And then when it just really, like, it just breaks out of his skin, he gets out of his chair, uh, out of his row, away from his parents, and starts running. He's 21 years old. He starts running, and he just does laps. And when he comes, I'm always on the front row. When he comes by me, I am completely defenseless against Matthew. Matthew's defenseless against the Holy Spirit. I'm defenseless against Matthew. And when he runs by me, I'm gone too. And the two of us are running around the room together. It's the best. When the glory is exposed... The joy shows up. What if we were able to be self-forgetful enough to participate in it? Now set that example up against what happens next. Look at Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 7. I mean, I just need you to see verse 24. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy. And they fell face down. And then Aaron's sons, this is verse, chapter 10, verse 1, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, little fire holder things, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. You need to un underline unauthorized fire, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Note to self, don't do unauthorized fire. It will not go well for you. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. 
That's a brokenhearted daddy. Moses summoned uh, Mishael and, uh, and Elzaphon, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them still in their tunics outside the camp as Moses ordered. And then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not let your hair become unkempt and do not tear your clothes. It's like he's turning around to his son and saying, all right, you guys need to shape up. <laughs> I just saw what happened to Aaron's son. You guys need to straighten up. Or you will die. The Lord will be angry with the whole community, but your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the tent, the entrance of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is on you. And so they did as Moses said. I want you to keep in mind these guys had just been through priesthood basic training. So why such a harsh response? I think this is God stopping it before it even gets started. The problem here wasn't the fire in the censer. The problem was the fire in their hearts. That fire exposed their hearts. That fire they started exposed their hearts hearts there. I'm going to do it my way heart. And God was simply not willing to have that example of unholy worship set so early in the game. That unauthorized fire, that was a rebellious heart. You know, one of the best movie lines, all the movie lines for me, and I've got a lot of good ones, is that very old movie, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Do you know that movie? Anybody seen it? Is this way? No, a lot of you. Good. That movie is half animation, half real people. Eddie Valiant is the real-life detective, and Jessica Rabbit is the animated vixen. And one day they're together, and she's telling him how hard it is to be her, how misunderstood she is. And she says, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way, which is hilarious because she's animated. Get it? But also interesting theologically, which I'm sure is exactly what they meant. Because this is the human condition. We're drawn that way. We're drawn toward rebellion. This is another one of those words. It's like you shouldn't be using rebellion in front of a, in front of a bunch of young adults. But folks, let's recover the term, understand it, and then get away from it because it doesn't go well for us as a human race. Rebellion is my will pitted against God's will. Rebellion is an interesting spirit. It shows up in subtle ways as entitlement or as excuses or sometimes as cutting corners or sometimes as hiding. What they don't know won't hurt me. It's often the way rejection gets lived out, actually. I want you to write this down. Rebellion is really just rejection turned outward. Every time we choose rebellion over surrender, it's a spiritual death to us. So the question for us is this, in what big or subtle, small way am I deciding to be my own God? It's interesting that right after this scene where these two guys get zapped by God, there's a paragraph, almost like a reminder, where God tells Aaron, you guys cannot get drunk on your way to worshiping me, or you will die. Isn't that a great comment? I mean, it's just right there in the middle of the Bible. And it's kind of ironic to me since I had my first beer on the way home from youth group. I want you to hear me. 
I'm not calling alcohol a sin. I'm just saying there's something kind of dangerous about expecting God to bless whatever we bring to him, whether holy or unholy, as if we get to define what that means. It's never okay to settle for unauthorized fire. Just because the cultural pressure is strong and it's easier to compromise, and otherwise, it's never going to be okay for me to sit down with you and tell you that you can persist in your sin because all the other kids are doing it. It's never going to be okay for you to externalize and make your sin everyone else's fault so you don't have to change. There's a lesson for us in here about what it means to be set apart people. It isn't us sitting in a spaghetti-proof room so our white jeans don't get stained. Set-apartness is not about settling for normal. It's about spreading bleach around us so we influence the world rather than being afraid of the world's influence over us. That's why I am so excited to have a whole week to talk holiness with college students because imagine what you could do if you took hold of this with both hands. You could go out and change the world, my friends. So how do you do that? How do you go out and start holy fires? First thing, honor the process. Stephen Furtick has said, God can't honor the promise if we don't honor the process. I think it's the, the biggest lesson of Nadab and Abihu. It was the, you know, their, their lesson is in the convenience grab. You know, they somehow wanted to participate in the glory and joy without honoring the process God had clearly put in front of them. And I'm just guessing this is a tendency for a lot of us. We want quick fixes and overnight transformations, cheap thrills, and immediate gratification. But here's the thing. Most of us who struggle with issues of our own making didn't get there overnight, and we won't get out overnight. And while God can do a miracle in a moment, I believe he subjects most of us to the process because it is the process that holifies us. Does this make sense? There's a phrase we use in recovery circles, act as if. It's an encouragement to act as if the challenge has already been met. Act as if our recovery is complete, even if we're still on the journey. Act as if our relationships are healed, even if they're still in process. Act as if our addiction is conquered, as if our depression is healing, as if our finances are stabilizing. Act as if we're whole and holy, even if we're still on the way there. And I absolutely believe there's huge power in that, sort of a prophetic thing that we can speak over ourselves. I'm going to decide today that I am walking into my healing, and then I'm going to act as if I'm doing that. We should act as if from the moment of our surrender, but understand that acting as if does not exempt us from the process because the process is how we learn to live with sacrifice. You ought to write that down. The process is how I learned to live with sacrifice. So a couple of us were talking earlier today about just what happens to your brains when you're spending a ton of time on your phone or a ton of time on Netflix or a ton of time on 
YouTube and there's a dopamine response that you get when you open your phone and somebody has responded or you open your Facebook or your Instagram and somebody's liked it or you know there's a dopamine response that actually gets your brain trained to want to do that more and more and more scientifically that's that's the case and even the folks who work there are looking for ways to give you more dopamine hits dopamine is a shortcut that will keep you from joy you see how that works so God may ask you to actually honor the process of a spiritual discipline that says, I got to set my phone aside for a while so I can be about the work of, of, of reading the scripture, doing my daily devotional, doing my prayer time with my phone across the room. So I'm not shortchanging the joy God has for me just for a dopamine hit. So what's your process? Is it 12 steps? Is it a spiritual discipline? Is it an accountability group or a recovery group? Do you have a regular time with someone who is pouring into you? The work of the process is to be holified, killing off everything in you that isn't fit for the kingdom of God. Paul says that the old has, he says this in um, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is coming. That verb tense is actually um, progressive. It's just brilliant. It's such a sign the Holy Spirit knows us because for most of us, recovery and healing and transformation is not a moment. It's a process. The new is coming. Every day, I'm a little bit better than the day I was before. I may not be who I want to be, but at least I'm not who I was. <laughs> we got a guy at Mosaic who used to sell more marijuana than anybody in the state of Georgia. We really are proud of him for his entrepreneurial spirit. And I'm not much of a fan of those cheesy Christian t-shirts, but he's got one that says that. I may not be who I want to be, but at least I'm not who I was. And I just think every time I see it, yeah, you, that's awesome, Robert. You know, <laughs> got a day job. <laughs> every day working out the old behaviors, working in the new. It's a powerful word I hear in Leviticus. Invite glory into your life. If you're wrestling with a rebellious spirit or a stubborn habit or some part of you that needs to be healed, invite God to show up and show you his glory. It's a prayer for deep people, for people who are fed up with the superficial. You know, Moses, one day when he got really aggravated with God, he picked up his tent, he took it outside the camp, and he met with God there. It says face-to-face -face, like a man meeting with his friend, and he had it out with God. He said, these are your people. I didn't pick these people. You picked these people. I'm not, and, and these people are a mess. And if you're going to take them someplace, you better go with us. I'm not going without you. Otherwise, how will anybody know? How will anybody know we're your people? And, and God says, okay, I'll go with you. Okay, okay. And then Moses says, no, no, no. I don't want you to just go with me. I want you to show me your glory. Man, I want to see a couple of you get that serious tonight. That when you come down here for the call, you've got, you come down here determined not to leave until you have seen the glory of God. That's the kind of prayer. If you're in here, in there with God at an intimate level, if, if you're ready to heal, if you are ready to invest in your prayer life, God, I want you to show me your glory. 
The, I don't know, did I give you a number two? No. <laughs> Honor the process. Two, invest in your prayer life. That's what I was just talking about. Number three, choose your path. Number three, choose your path. This is the advice of people who teach people how to ride motorcycles. You know, when you're making, anybody here ride motorcycles? Like one person. Give them a hand, friends. Give them a hand. You should give them a big hand because riding a motorcycle is a dangerous thing. Come on, give them a big hand. There you go. They say, tell me if I'm wrong about this, when you're making a turn, you have to lean into it and you have to keep your eye on the furthest visible point of the turn. Is that right? Yeah. So that you always, you keep your, you keep your eye on the furthest visible point in the turn on where you want to end up, not where you are. That's the trick to staying on a bike even when you're leaning into a turn. It's all on where your eye is focused. So Leviticus tells the story of how the office of priest was established among God's people. But Jesus gave the priesthood to the people. In Luke 9, he gave the people power and authority to cast out demons, cure disease, proclaim the kingdom, and heal the sick. And he told Peter, you are the church. He told the disciples at his ascension, you are my witnesses. The new covenant gave the priesthood to the people. So Leviticus is like God on a motorcycle, leaning into the turn, seeing that while he was anointing a couple of priests back here in the Old Testament, there's going to be a world full, a priesthood of believers by the time we get to the new covenant. You are, Peter says, you are, hold on a second, Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. His Old Testament image of a few priests who are trying so hard to get it right. We owe them so much because today we are the priesthood of the new covenant. And so just as God called them and set them apart to be holy, God calls you priests to be holy because he is. It's a holy calling. This priest to be, I mean, this call to be priests to one another, signs of God's presence, bearers of glory. And God still takes that calling very seriously and wants to know, is the fire in your heart a holy fire? And if it isn't, what needs to give? I'm going to tell you a story and then we're going to have an altar call, okay, to get ready. Last year, I had a spiritual breakthrough. I don't know if you ever had one of those. It's a moment in the, when you get, it's a threshold experience. You get right up at the threshold, there's a lot of spiritual pressure against. The enemy doesn't like thresholds because when you move into a new spiritual room, it can be so powerful. Just at the point of breakthrough, I was having a rough time emotionally. But then that spiritual breakthrough on a Monday morning, I was in the shower. Why does Jesus do that? <laughs> and he drove me to my knees. And I felt it. I mean, it was breakthrough. And I heard the Lord. 
I mean, I was on my knees, you know, and I'm ready to have the moment, and God says, no, no, stand up. And what he's asking me to do is come up out of your grave, be resurrected. So I stood up. And the Lord invited me to place a part of myself under his care. I heard him invite me into healing. He showed me how I'd been protecting this one little broken part of me, trying to accommodate it while I lived my life. And I could see, I could see all of a sudden, like for the first time, how trying to live my life on two tracks at once, this thing that I was trying to protect while I was trying to live out this call, just how impossible that is to ride a train on two tracks at once. And I, he told me I, I had to hand some broken part of me over to Jesus and let him be Lord. That was freedom for me that day. That was it, that day, that moment. Jesus invited me to press into his crucified flesh, something that was breeding death with the assurance that Jesus would carry it in a way that would breed not shame and death, but freedom and life. This thing was like, you, you press it into my flesh, into my crucified flesh, and I will raise you up out of that. And he did. And I wonder tonight, what is it for you? What are you carrying? What broken piece of you? What broken piece of you? And for some of you, it might be unholy fire. For some of you, it's just, a, I just didn't even know that I didn't know this. What piece of you needs to be f pressed into the flesh of Jesus so you can be raised, so you can stand up into something new? Who in here is right there, right there, right there at the threshold? 